Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. space here we are tonight lance to introduce a fantastic interview that we did with elise soper of the cryptid antiquarian blog so how are you doing tonight i'm doing all right how are you i'm all right except uh, obviously in this introduction we have to share some bad news during the course of the interview with elise we talked about the disappearance of michael kelleher in Boston. And the three of us expressed our feelings that we didn't want this to go down the road that the rest of the vanishing men of Boston have gone down. And it seems that tragically, it has gone down that road. Michael Kelleher's body was recovered from the Charles River on Easter Sunday, April 16th, 2017. I just wanted to read what his parents said in a statement Sunday evening. They say, it is with great sadness that we have to share with you that our son, Michael Kelleher, has passed. Sadly, Michael was claimed by the Charles River the night of his disappearance. At eight this morning, the river gave him back to us. And that's from his parents, Lori and Mike Kelleher. So add another man of Boston to this list. It's staggering, really. And it's haunting. When we were listening to this back, it's haunting to hear us talk about somebody not knowing what 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 had happened to him. So the familiar story happens again. Surveillance cameras spotted Kelleher leaving the TD Garden at about 9 p.m. About 10 p.m. and 11 p.m., his cell phone was pinged on Tremont Street. That's about a mile away, about an 18-minute walk away. Tried to hire an Uber near the TD Garden. He never got into that Uber. And then on April 3rd, police began searching for him. By the Charles River Dam, under the Zakem Bridge. These, these are the same stories, the same circumstances that you'll hear Elise talk about in the in the interview. And on Sunday, his body was pulled from the locks area of the Charles. Our thoughts and prayers go out to Michael's family and friends. So let's roll the interview with Elise. She is a very interesting person and a really talented writer. A link to her blog, Cryptid Antiquarian, is in our show notes. Okay, so here is the interview. Thank you very much for listening. Welcome to Crawl Space. Elise Soper, how are you tonight? I'm good. How are you? We're doing well. We're fascinated by this mystery and by your work. Um, before we get into it, tell us a little bit about yourself. I've lived in Boston for probably about seven years now and I've grown up in the surrounding area and um, I've always been really really interested in unsolved mysteries like I used to watch the show literally all the time when I was little Um, I watched a lot of shows about supernatural you know Bigfoot all that crazy kind of stuff too so I have a pretty strong pretty long background in uh, unsolved and paranormal things. Very cool. I am also very fascinated by one aspect of uh, what you got going on here, and that is the 
massive amount of activity happening in the background of the Skype video. Tell me a little, just a little bit, just, I need you to paint the audience a picture of what's happening behind you. Well, this is my room. So, um, it's basically the, you know, center of my brain at this point. So you can imagine what the inside of my brain looks like. It's probably pretty similar to this. That's my, that's the nerdy half of my room. Uh, I really wish you could see the wall in front of me, but there's no desk to put my computer on facing the other way, but that's my, uh, more biology type wall where i've got my like taxidermy and stuff like that so oh oh cool yeah we'll save that for the next time (laughs) i'll have to set something up yeah so that's just all you know anime posters uh collections of action figures stuff like that (laughs) i i feel really set at ease that we're about to embark on this mystery with you being a central figure looking at that stuff behind you because I somehow looking at that makes me just feel very comfortable that that you are are the foremost blogger in this case and you'll be working with us. <laughs> I have uh, many eclectic interests. <laughs> so this mystery is uh, is pretty crazy and it seems to have uh, changed your life in some ways. Well, I first put my blog out um, a few summers ago and back then it was just kind of rambling anything I felt like writing up and posting. Um, and then I started to focus a little bit more on, um, you know, the stuff I was talking about unsolved mysteries, uh, you know, paranormal stuff. I wrote about, you know, um, the Dyatlov pass incident and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I started reading a lot of David Politis and, um, just started kind of noticing, some of the things he was talking about were happening around me living in Boston, which I thought was really interesting because for the first time I was sort of in the middle of it. Uh, whereas before I'd always been writing as kind of an outsider. Uh, so I definitely wanted to look more into those cases cause I, I it was so easy for me like living here. Um, and then Zach Marr went missing in March of that year um, and after he went missing, the blog just kind of blew up. I don't know if people started Googling it. I know one of the first bigger people who, uh, shared it was, um, Ryan Buell. Um, he's a paranormal investigator. Okay. And, um, so I think that that got a lot of notoriety out there, but yeah, it was just crazy. It was like, it went from zero to 60 real fast. <laughs> like one second I had like, you know, 9,000 hits and most of those were from writing about Elisa Lamb actually and then literally by the end of the night I had like 500,000 hits and I was like whoa (laughs) take us back to how did you first start connecting the dots I'm coming from the standpoint of a listener maybe in uh, New Zealand or or Australia or even you know Portland Oregon Uh, tell us a little bit about what's Tell us as much as you can about what is happening here in Boston and the greater Boston area. And when did you start connecting the dots and what dots are you connecting? Yeah. So, um, there's this kind of weird, it it must be just a general like human trait where a weird thing can be happening, but if it's been happening, for long enough and like no one really does anything about it it just becomes normal and I think that that's what was happening in Boston uh basically these cases were going on for years and you know a young college-aged man would go missing you know usually when someone goes missing um you have some ideas about where they might be you know did they run away did they get kidnapped did they get murdered there's um you know different possibilities and then maybe for each you know, category of person who went missing, certain possibilities are more likely. But for some reason, whenever a college-aged male went missing, every time it would be like, oh, he's going to be found on the Charles. But, like, no one really questioned, like, wait, why do we think that? Why does that happen? Why is that such a common thing? We just, like, accepted it at some point. (laughs) So I think the day that I woke up and realized that, maybe this wasn't just a normal thing was the day that I was reading David Politis's book drowning coincidence and seeing the cases that he was talking about. 
and reading specifically the ones in Boston, which really hit me, obviously, because I know the area so well. And just um, I started Googling it to see if there were any other cases that weren't in his book. And there were. There was a bunch. And that was what really shocked me. I was like, wow, even he couldn't find all these cases. There were so many of them that he didn't even have them all. So, And what year was that? When I read the book or? When you read uh, David Pilatus's book and it started to come together in your head that these could possibly be uh, connected. Well, I got the book for Christmas, not this past Christmas, but the previous Christmas. And then finished all three of those books by early February, which was when I started writing the blog post. So probably sometime around then. Okay. So you received them in 20, Christmas 2015 and, and finished them in 2016. Um, yes. let, let's uh, summarize who David Politis is real quick. Um, we talked right before we started rolling about some of his work. And uh, I know Lance and I have heard some of his interviews on Coast to Coast in the past. Um, actually, I think I kind of made Lance listen to uh, to one of them uh, because it was so damn fascinating. And, and this is going back to the summer of 2012, I would say. Um, so I, we've been familiar with his work since then. I have not read any of his uh, books, though. Um, he, he does the Missing 411 series. Um, and so... <clears throat> I know there's a lot of conjecture out there about what he thinks, and I think a lot of people kind of group him into a Bigfoot researcher or a Bigfoot truther, and I think that's a little unfair. Do you think so? Well, on the one hand, um, no, because he is. He's written written multiple books about Bigfoot um, and, and seems pretty confident in himself that he has proven that Bigfoot is real. So on one hand, yeah, he is. But on the other hand, I don't think it's fair to group that with the missing four on one cases, because I don't think that they're related. They're just related in the aspect of he did research on both of them and then wrote books about them. Um, And I think a lot of people try to put words in his mouth and say that he's trying to somehow say that Bigfoot is kidnapping these people and I think he's um, made it pretty clear multiple times, whether it's in interviews and also in the books themselves, that that's not what he's trying to say. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think, you know, I write about a lot of paranormal stuff, too, and, you know, aliens and all that stuff. But I don't want to try to, you know, try to make this topic that I'm talking about, about missing men, any less serious by talking about those other things on the side. I really want to get into the first one, in your opinion. Who's the first one and when? And give us a a bit of a breakdown on on this person and any any patterns that you might see uh, developing. The first one chronologically um, that I have in my blog uh, was not the first one I what I found. And, um, when I found him, you know, I, you know, basically just did some very cursory Google searches, like men found in the Boston waters and stuff like that to try to find these cases. And the further in time you go back, the harder it is to find out about these cases because, you know, there wasn't as much news coverage. The internet wasn't as big back then. And a lot of the pages have been archived or completely lost. So, I was actually getting a lot of really good information from um, the MIT website. Um, They have like their newspaper, which is very well researched, is um, states all the way back to, I don't even really know, but I found ones from like the 90s and stuff on there, I think. So that was where I actually found John DeVario. And DeVario was a teacher at MIT. He was a musicology professor. And now I can't remember which year he went missing. I don't know if you 2003, yeah. 2003. Um, and he's, you know, at first glance, he, you know, you'd be like, why are you including this guy? He's not a college-age student, um, you know, just because he was found in the water or whatever. But there's so many other similarities that tie him to the cases that I felt like it was really important to include him. Not to mention, I, my feelings are I'm not looking for cases that fit into a cookie cutter mold. I'm trying to figure out what that 
mold even is. So I'm trying to include any case that I even think might be involved. That's why a lot of the cases in my um, second blog post, they seem a little bit more disconnected. It's partially because there's a lot less info out there about those ones and partially because I don't want to discount them just because not everything is exactly the same as in the first blog post. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's why I included John DeVario is because he's older, yes, but other than that, he has so many connections, which include, I mean, he was a college professor, so even if he wasn't a college student, he was still at a college. Um, he was a musicology professor. Um, a lot of the cases of these men have been very musically inclined, artistically inclined, things like that, very talented. Um, he was a professor at MIT, which implies that he was rather intelligent. Um, most of these men are very intelligent. A lot of them are engineers and stuff like that. So it was just all these little things. And then the thing that really freaked me out was one of the big points that uh, Politis talks about in his books is that for some reason, a slightly higher than normal number of the people who go missing are wearing the color red, um, which maybe isn't actually, you know, maybe it's just one of those weird coincidences. Like, you know, one in three of them will be wearing red as opposed to like, why wouldn't there be a more uniform amount? He was wearing a, a red jacket when he went missing. Um, and that was sort of, first of all, I don't even really know why that was included specifically in the post because it seemed kind of random almost to throw in like, Oh, and he happened to be wearing a red jacket. But like when I read that, I just got chills. Cause I was like, wow, what are the odds of that? That's so weird. I'm dying. Yeah. I felt the same way when I read that it's uh, tech MIT, their, their newspaper. And when I read that too, I, it, 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 I did the same thing. I got the chills. I read Commonwealth Avenue. So you picture Commonwealth Avenue walking, uh, wearing a red jacket, carrying a white bag and you can just see it. You see that, uh, you know, in my brain, it turns into a CCTV uh, footage. You know, that's how it looks in my brain. And and right after I read that and I thought that, I thought, that's weird that they said a red jacket. That's that's strange because this isn't this isn't an article about him being missing. And if you see him, he's wearing a red jacket. This is an article about him, him after, he, after he's been found. Tell us about the uh, the briefcase and the wallet. So that relates to also a lot of the cases of, you know, the men leave things behind as if, you know, they're not really planning on being gone long or, you know, maybe they didn't intend to be out long or something like that. So that's, yeah, just another thing that ties it to the other cases. This is something that Tim and I talk about pretty often on uh, about uh, the, the Maura Murray case and the items that were left in her car and the items that she uh, reportedly took with her and how it, you know, there are certain things that you can just tell people take with them because they anticipate returning. They have a they have a destination. Maybe he was going out to to mail a letter or something, and just was going to run right back. Um, still, though, that that not taking your wallet somewhere is uh, is a little odd to me. Um, I want to backtrack a little bit and talk to you. You said I think you might have downplayed it a bit. You said that he was uh, he was a, a smart man or a, or a highly intelligent man. This was a really really intelligent man. This was a man who wrote books about things that people don't even think about. He um, he was considered what was he considered the leading expert in um, where is it Oh Robert Schumann um, and German romanticism. So he, I mean, a world's leading expert on anything really implies that you're probably pretty intelligent. So the most that I found people have said about his mental state at the time was that he might have been depressed about his parents being sick, but we're talking about a 49 year old, very smart man who has probably seen many things in his life and his parents getting on an age, yes, would probably make one very sad, but certainly not sad enough to walk out and throw yourself in, in a river in March. That usually goes the other way when your parents are sick. You usually uh, do the opposite of, um, you know, run away and, and get, get depressed to the point where you commit suicide. Totally right. I mean, you you become you become a provider for them. You become somebody who is who is there for them, and you have this purpose in your life to make sure that their last days are as comfortable as possible. Yeah, of course that makes you sad. But if they're sick over the course of several months, that sadness also turns into 
acceptance and they lived a good life. I just find it really amazing that people – well, yeah, he was kind – maybe he was a little depressed. No one has a reason for this. No one has a reason for anything – for him intentionally throwing himself in the water other than eh, he might have been a little depressed. No, and from what I've uh, read about what people have said about him, he was actually like taking care of his parents. So it seems very unlikely that he would do this especially when he knew that they sort of counted on him. And it's not like his parents, uh, you know, it's not like they were already deceased either. So, I mean, if his both his parents had already died um, and he was depressed from that, uh, that would be a, a little bit more understandable because, you know, in this situation, his parents were still alive and still there and loved him and were relying on him. So it's definitely seems like a very strange, strange thing to happen if you want to try to say that it's suicide. Well, the official cause of death was accidental, as if he may have slipped on ice and and fell, hit his head. He went missing on March 16th, correct? March 16th, so it was 8, 8.30 p.m. So it's okay. probably, I guess it was dark out probably, but. Oh, definitely. But so... uh, he, I mean, he was a teacher in the area. He knew the area incredibly well. I just, it. I don't know. I find it very difficult to believe that you, I think it's also pretty difficult in that particular area to fall and slip into the water in that area. I'll admit uh, there are a few places around the Harbor where I can, I can understand that happening, but um, not so much around the Charles itself. Well, when was his body found? April 14th. So his body was found almost a month later. So if it were a case of him walking to well, – I just want to say mail a letter again. I'm just saying that. But if it was a case of him walking to mail a letter and he slips and falls on the ice and he falls into the water, I mean it really is going to take a month? It's going to take a month to find him? He's wearing a red jacket. Another mystery out there, Lance, is Hunt-A-Killer. What they do, this product is just so special. We've both received box one, and we've talked about it and how to solve it, and it's really a fascinating game. So we just wanted to take a second to tell you guys about this new subscription box called Hunt-A-Killer. Maybe you've heard about it, but people are obsessed. Hunt-A-Killer sends a package to your home each month full of creepy correspondence from their killer curator. He's a little bit like Hannibal Lecter, and he's got a mystery for you to solve. You know, Tim, I'm almost upset that you brought up Hunt a Killer because it's really been a, a consuming thing in my brain. Once we're done with this, I'm going to go back to the kit. I'm going to look at all the clues that I have. Each month, you receive new clues, letters, articles, objects, tools, all adding to an ongoing murder mystery. It's up to you to solve it, along with thousands of other members all working together in the online community, it's the perfect thing for an armchair detective looking to put their sleuthing skills to the test. And it's just like being a real armchair detective, like an online sleuth, like we all are. You Google the things that you get and you see where it takes you. This is an interactive game where they have planned ahead for this. And it doesn't feel like a game, which is the most amazing thing. It feels like you're in a real murder mystery. And you can join by logging on to huntakiller.com and applying for membership. Huntakiller is growing so fast that they have to limit new members to 500 a week. So once you apply and you are approved for membership, you will receive a private link to subscribe. Then a monthly package arrives on your door each month. Waiting is the hardest part. They're legit. They've been featured in BuzzFeed, Fast Company, and Bustle. And Huntakiller is forming that cult-like community like we we're saying, of web sleuths and armchair detectives. If you love poring over creepy codes, ciphers, and clues, Hunt a Killer is simply perfect. And if it's not for you, I'd be shocked. If you're listening to these podcasts, I have a feeling you know at least one person that would love to receive it as a gift. I cannot recommend this membership enough. So to help support this show, Hunt a Killer has offered a 10% discount to our listeners, which is tracked to this very message. So use code CRAWLSPACE and get 10% off. Use code CRAWLSPACE for 10% off. 
a lot of these are ruled accidental deaths. Like how many how many of these can be accidental? I don't, I don't I'm very confused about that. And and one of them even said I forget um, who I know we talked about it last time Lance though, but um, one of them said it was ruled an accidental death, but CCTV showed him quote entering the water. Yeah, that was Zach. That's uh, Mac, yeah, Zachary Marr. Zachary Marr. So, so what's the definition of entering the water? Slipping and falling and entering the water, or been asking that question since about last year when I first heard that be stated. What does entering the water mean? Like that's a very strange way to put it, in my opinion. You know, it wasn't falling, it wasn't jumping, it was. I, I think that choice of word was very, very uh, deliberate by the by the police to the media. Zachary Marr was the latest one to go missing and turn up dead in the water. That was in February of 2016, mm-hmm. as far as we know. We do right now have another person that's still missing, Michael Kelleher. And you know, we're, we're all hoping that he turns up. Alive. Alive. Doesn't this seem to you very, very familiar? Um, upsettingly familiar, yes. Uh, for almost a whole year, I honestly, some part of me believed, like, maybe it's over. Maybe, you know, enough awareness got raised that, you know, people are you know, going to be a little more careful. No one's going out alone. Maybe, you know, if it is a serial killer or something, maybe I scared them away and they're going to go somewhere else. I don't know. But uh, yeah, when I, the, the day he, the news broke that he went missing, the, you know, messages started flooding into me and I was just like, Oh God, not again. Like I really, it's the last thing that you want to see, honestly. I feel like, uh, well, you're you're much more embedded in this. Uh, Tim and I had been talking about the different cases that we were going to look at for Crawl Space, and this was always on the peripheral. And then the news of Michael Kelleher, uh, we read the news of Michael Kelleher, and it just, it was like, we got to do it. We got to, we, we have to start talking about it because... You look at you look at the dates and on your first blog before you expand your 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 search. It's and the thing that struck me was we're in the season. It doesn't it feel like it's seasonal, like October, November, and and February, March, maybe April. But it, we were so close, right? We were so close to you know the February, March, and and he it was March twenty fourth, I believe, right, or March twenty sixth. It was it was the the last week, the last few days of March. And and it came out, and it just felt so, so disturbing, so so depressingly disturbing. It's bizarre because, um, yeah, like you said, there seems to be a sort of season or a pattern um, that they usually. It seems like they tend to happen in the beginning of winter or toward the end of winter. Um, and I, I have no idea what the reasoning for that is. And it also seems to fluctuate, you know. One year or one time they'll be found in the Charles, and then the next time it's the Harbor, and then the next time it's the Charles. And that seems to be pretty consistent also that it's just sort of a back-and-forth thing going on. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street, accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded, and the verdicts came back not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened to O.J. Simpson. And look what happened in Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, 
subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Serial killers obviously have patterns. That's something we've heard forever. That's something that's been proven over and over. But does, does Supernatural, do, do, do things like that have patterns? Like, I can't imagine this is, you know, just hypothetical, okay? I can't imagine this is some spaceship taking these guys away, and they're like, oh, let me see. Oh, it's February. It's time time to get someone from Boston. Like, uh, you know, yeah, they don't give a shit about our months. I mean, maybe it's just coincidence if that, obviously, that's probably not what's happening either. But what do you make of that? Well, if it was something a little bit more on the, you know, outskirts of the believable quote unquote, you know, like that, like, you know, an alien or interdimensional, whatever. Um, it's possible that it happens, um, during the winter months because generally, well, they happen at night, uh, when the men go missing, obviously. And generally there's probably less people out around in Boston at night than during the summer. Um, so, you know, less witnesses, uh, I mean, that could also explain serial killers, I suppose. But the the the, the seasonal part of it, the it, Boston is a huge college town. I don't think you'll ever have a period of time where you are casing your victims in Boston and saying this is a good period of time because there's not a lot of people around. We're talking right when college starts, like within the, the, the first couple of months of college starting. And then right when people come back from uh, February vacation or spring break or, or whatever. Right. So the end of March, I uh, just want to add that that was March 29th of this year that Michael Kelleher uh, was missing. He, he left uh, the TD bank garden after a Celtics game. That's certainly not a place that, is uh, secluded after a Celtics game. Um, and to to follow up on the supernatural end of it, I don't believe that there's something supernatural, but what is really fascinating to me, and Tim, you said this before, it's kind of creepy to think of some sort of siren that, that, that calls to these people. And that made me start thinking about how people act differently and animals act differently during full moons and during tidal, tidal pulls, right, and cosmically. What if there's something that is, that is a, a, uh, an unbalance or maybe a balance in somebody's, in somebody's chemical makeup during that time pulls them to the water? And it's not anything supernatural as far as a siren, but these are people that have probably been drinking. Actually, for the most part, the, the majority of them have been leaving a bar or drinking. Maybe that opens up their consciousness a little bit more. Uh, it, their, their inhibitions are down and there's something that is pulling them there because none of them seem like the type that I would ever – I mean I've never met them, but were there any that people said – Oh yeah, this person was definitely suicidal. Not really. At least, definitely not in my first uh, blog posting. Um, that I, yeah, no, I don't think so. In the second one, there was one where they may have found a note on one of their computers or something like that. But as far as in the first post, no, not really. Um, most of them were kind of in the opposite direction. They they had planned like the thing about suicidal people is a lot of times they don't set up plans for the future. Um, and most of the people in, in my posting, they had certain plans ahead of time that, um, didn't indicate that they were suicidal in any way, but yeah, about the, first of all, if anyone out there can, you know, find a way to find what the, you know, moon phases were during each of the, you know, disappearances, I would love to know that. Cause that's, it's so hard to find any kind of information like this and I wouldn't even know where to begin to look it was hard enough just finding 
um, you know, tides for a few of them that I was looking for. That took me like forever and water temperatures. Um, so I did find a few of those around, which was helpful, but I, I don't even really know where to begin with things like moon phases. So if anyone can do that, that would be awesome. Um, yeah. And the other thing is I've always kind of had the idea that things that we consider to be supernatural, um, the things that are real, at least, um, they're just things that science hasn't, you know, just like figured out yet or discovered. So I think, you know, back, you know, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, stuff that we know is a scientific fact today was considered supernatural by those people. So, you know, there's probably plenty of things we still have no idea about. And whether it's, you know, moon phases affecting your brain and making you want to walk into the ocean, who knows? I mean, I think that that's, you know, just as much possibility. And I don't want to rule that out either. And I definitely think that it's important to have a skeptical but open mind when you're looking into cases like this. Absolutely. Great way to put it. Because you do need to be both. You need to be you need to be open because information can come from anywhere. And if you just say, oh, this person is a troll or this is bullshit or, you know, you have to be open enough to accept information. Um, but a skeptical mind is good, too, because if you don't have a skeptical mind, you know, your your brain could be going – you could really be in trouble looking at a case like this. You you could spend all your waking hours looking into something like this. Right. If you're if you're you're looking at all of the serial killer or the supernatural and and yeah, you're and you're right. I don't know what what exactly you meant by you're in trouble, but you're in trouble somehow if you're if you're not allowing yourself to have some skepticism in there. How did you do your reporting? Did you get a lot of this information from news reports or from um, yeah, articles? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I basically. <laughs> I basically found every single bit of coverage that I could um, online for each of the cases and then kind of cross-checked them against each other and um, tried to get the closest possible thing I could to the true story because obviously a lot of times um, there's, you know, weird inconsistencies and just straight-up fake stuff in news articles, so... Um, I tried to basically cross check and anything that I was like, mm, that wasn't in any other article. And that seems kind of strange. I, you know, usually weeded it out. Have you spoken with any of the family members? Yes. Um, for multiple of them, actually. Um, I talked to family and friends of Eugene Losick. Um, I talked to Dustin Willis's, uh, loved ones. So I've, I've talked to quite a few people actually, most of the time who reached out to me initially, um, either to give me a little bit more information, a couple of them even, you know, corrected me on a thing or two, which I went back and edited, um, and, uh, similar stuff to that. So I noticed on your blog that Zachary Mars sister contacted you to inform you that some of your facts weren't totally accurate and you responded by saying, contact me outside of the blog. Were you, were you grateful for her to set the, some of the facts straight? Did you talk to her and was she, was she open-minded to what you're doing? Yeah. So unfortunately, um, most of the contact that I've had um, with uh, loved ones of Zach Marr hasn't gone great in my opinion. Um, I think probably because it's the most recent, like the most, um, you know, open wound per se. And, and I think there's been a lot of really, you know, high emotion stuff like that. So um, I try to be as straightforward as I can um, whenever I get any people commenting me saying, you know, this fact is wrong, this fact is wrong. I say, great, awesome, um, you know, if you're not a personal loved one of the person I say you know what are your sources so that I can try to look into this myself and if they are I always uh email them personally because I want to move the conversation out of the public eye as fast as possible because I don't want you know them to be concerned about other people hearing things so I immediately start to try to contact them through email instead and honestly most of the time they never get back to me in email which is very strange um 
I don't think she ever did. I, I emailed her and I don't think she ever responded. And I've re- tried to reach out to her a couple other times to say like, what is it that's wrong? I really want to talk to you about this. I, you know, I'm not in the business of, you know, making up stories for attention or anything like that. So I definitely want to get the truth out there. And, you know, as far as I know from the sources that I've had, the stuff on my blog is true. But, you know, if anyone has anything that proves otherwise, I, I'm definitely 100% willing to look into it. So that is a very professional way to handle what you're doing. And uh, that was one of the reasons that I suggested that or that you really need to write a book. You took the words right out of my mouth right there. We work, we, we, we experience so many people who have the opposite approach and their justification of it is they'll almost get you to believe it because of, of how passionately they talk about it. Uh, but yes, very professional way to, way to approach it. Taking it out of the public eye only shows how legitimate you are. When I first started the blog, uh, I wasn't, it was really, it was sort of for me in a way. It was just where I kind of put my thoughts and things that were interesting to me. So I had never stopped to think about, um, you know, people hundreds of miles away that I didn't even know seeing it and what they might think. Um, And then especially when I did this post and, you know, actual family members of these men started contacting me, it was extremely humbling. And um, I really stopped and had to think about how I was going to go forward and handle things. And I had to start constantly reminding myself, um, and I do it now constantly every single day, that these were, these are people they they all had lives they all loved ones and it's it's definitely kind of surreal um when you write you read so much about a man you write a story all about him and then suddenly you know his mother is sending you a message it's it's just something i never could have anticipated happening gerald gelb was 44 he went missing in 2001 John DeVario was 49. He went missing in 2003. Daniel Moon was 20. He went missing in 2003. David Crockett was 45, and he went missing in 2004. Dustin Willis was 26. He went missing in 2007. John Pike was 23. He was missing in 2007. Neo Babson Maximus, also known as Charles M. Allen Jr., was 22 and he went missing in 2007. William Hurley was 24, he went missing in 2009. Eugene Losick was 26, he went missing in 2010. Justin Marshall was 30, he went missing in 2010. David Mark was 24, he went missing in 2011. Christopher Martin was 24, he went missing in 2011. Franco Garcia was 21, he went missing in 2012. D'Anthony Green was 23. He went missing in 2012. Pedro Colon Rodriguez was 69. He went missing in 2012. Jonathan Daly was 23. He went missing in 2012. Joseph A. Gage was 32. He went missing in 2013. Eric Munsell was 24. He went missing in 2014. Shiloh Morgado was 36. He went missing in 2015. Jose Quispe was 18. He went missing in 2015. Dennis Giroge was 21. He went missing in 2015. Zachary Marr was 22, and he went missing in 2016. And currently, Michael Kelleher is still missing, 2017. And I pray that I don't have to add him to this list. done any kind of boots on the ground research looking into into this have you walked the paths of some of these young men I have. literally yep um what do you I, yeah what do you learn from that 
well, you know, I feel like it's important to do for starters, just to kind of get a feel of, you know, what the area around it is like. Um, because, you know, um, a lot of people who aren't familiar with Boston might comment on some of these cases and say, oh, well, you know, maybe he slipped or maybe this happened or that happened. And um, it's very difficult to envision, you know, the possibilities of what might happen if you haven't seen it. Um, and it's not, you know, there's not a lot of pictures of these specific kinds of areas available on the Internet. So because I'm here and it's very, very easy for me to do, I wanted to try to you know, retrace as much as I could the steps of as many of the men as I could. So, you know, I left TD Garden uh, out the back way and walked down Nashua Street to where Dustin Willis went missing. And, I mean, excuse me, not Dustin Willis, William Hurley, to where William Hurley went missing. And um, basically tried to get from there to the water and see where he would have had to have gone to do that. Um, I went out the side of the TD garden past um, the North station entrance and under the Zakem bridge to where I presume Zach Marr went uh, the night that he went, entered the water. Um, so I got a really good feel for that area. What is that like? So Zach Marr went missing from the, um, the bell in hand tavern, which is, Actually, like, I mean, Boston's not a super big city, so nothing is, you know, that far away from anything else. But in comparison with a lot of these other cases, that's kind of a, a slightly bigger distance. Um, if, if he was just trying to, you know, go to the water or whatever, I don't know if they want to say he was suicidal or something, but um, it would have been easier for him to, you know, hang a... a right and go toward the harbor that's actually a lot closer um the area of like the marriott long wharf which is actually where several of the other men were missing but for some reason he chose to walk in it would seem almost a straight line past boston public market up toward td garden um and straight under like a sort of overpass of the zakem bridge um so yeah, basically like a straight shot toward um, that area, toward the water there. And it's a weird area because the water, unless you kind of know that that weird little walkway is hidden back there uh, next to the commuter rail, it's not, it's not obvious that the water is there. And he wasn't familiar with the area. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know what they want to try to say that he was doing under there or how he even thought to go down that kind of weird little walkway but um yeah it's not super straightforward and he intended on going back in the bar from what you know his uh friends say from that night yeah um supposedly there's kind of a he said she said sort of thing with one of the um the bouncers that was there uh they said he never asked to come back in um he himself had told his friends that the bouncers wouldn't let him back in. Um, and I actually, my uh, grandmother has been a bartender for years and has worked in places with bouncers and has said that if it's close enough to closing time, um, that they won't let you back in a lot of times because they don't want to deal with having to get everybody back out again. So yeah. as a uh, personal experience kind of thing, I, I apparently think that that is uh, a possibility. So. Yeah, it, it's very tough to get into a bar in Boston after one thirty. Even if you're trying to get back in to say get your coat or to get your friends, they they generally don't let you do it. Mm -hmm. um, what's the single strangest thing that you found that you've come across with this? Oh, the single strangest thing. <laughs> Other than everything. Yeah, been <laughs> a lot. Um, the the strangest moment for me in any of the cases is probably basically what happened to William Hurley. Um, he was the one that left the Bruins game from TD Garden, went out the back way toward Nashua Street, called his girlfriend, was on the phone with her. She was like right around the corner from where he was. They were just about to meet up. She turns the corner and he's just not there. And they had just talked, like, moments ago. So, like, the 
only thing I can imagine that, you know, is apparently what the authorities want us to believe is that he just ran away from her straight to the Charles. And it's just not, uh, doesn't sit right with me. (laughs) What was his background? Um, he was actually a Navy man, um, sort of like Dustin Willis. Right. Was just a, a generally a really nice seeming guy. He was from North Carolina originally. You know, he moved to Boston. Um, I don't know a ton about his um, personal life, like what he was interested in. That wasn't available in the articles as readily, and I haven't managed to talk to any of his family. But from all accounts, he was just a really nice kind of normal guy. He wasn't doing anything bad wasn't suicidal um he only had like a half a beer that night supposedly which i believe because it's been said by multiple people so and this was chronologically dustin willis and then william hurley right or am i wrong yes and actually um dusty was he had been stationed in virginia but he was from north carolina um so that's just another just even weirder thing. So both of the men were from North Carolina. They're both in the Navy. Um, one was stationed in Virginia. One was stationed in Florida originally. Um, and then in 2007, they both at the same time were up here in Boston uh, during uh, St. Patrick's Day. Um, I don't remember why exactly or know why their their ships that they were uh, stationed on basically were were docked here, and that was the year that William Hurley met his girlfriend, and Dustin Willis went missing. Okay, Dustin Willis went missing on St. Patrick's Day during a uh, during a blizzard in two thousand and seven. That same day. William Hurley was in Boston and met his girlfriend. And then two years later, he also goes missing. He moved to Boston and also went missing, yes. Both of them are from North Carolina. Both of them are in the Navy. Yes. Okay. I know. You read, you read it and you look at it all and it's like, what? Like, it sounds too coincidental and too bizarre to be real. But it, it is. It's incredible. Uh, and one thing that we can get into the next time that we talk is your 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 map of Boston's vanishing men. And I don't know if you've looked into it, whether there's a connection between the ones that have been found on the South Shore and beyond. So the South Shore and lower uh, around Dartmouth and Plymouth and and uh, Sandwich, uh, right on right on the um, right before you get onto the Cape. Uh, and then the ones that have been clustered right in Boston. There's not a whole lot in, in the middle there. I don't know if you've ever found a connection between the time of year or the type of person. You know, are the are there ones on the South Shore in, in the fall? I you know, That's something that we can get into the next time. But I, the second I looked at that map, I, I just I saw I saw there's there's a cluster north in Boston and there's a cluster beyond South Shore. Like a little bit more south than South Shore. Yes, definitely. And I've gotten messages from people who are like, you know, if if this is just a coincidence, then why isn't it happening down the Cape? Why isn't it happening? You know, there's, you know, most of the state is surrounded in water. So why is it just these two kind of locations? Right, this is kind of thing isn't happening in the uh, in the lakes or, or well rivers it is, but not in the lakes around Massachusetts. There are a ton of lakes in Massachusetts. Um, last question I have is: uh, you mentioned you got goosebumps while researching some of this and writing some of this at times. I'm sure that happened more than once. But have you felt like you were in any danger, or or have you felt like you should? not be doing this to protect yourself? Um, yes, actually. Um, I've definitely had some, some weird feelings. Um, you know, I'm kind of an idiot and I've gone to a few of these places by myself cause I'm, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me, but, <laughs> but, um, you know, when I've done that, I've been like, Oh boy, this could be it. 
But um, I've also gotten a couple of really creepy messages um, that have had sort of weird, you know, cryptic statements in them and stuff like that. And I mean, I don't know uh, what that what they might mean, but they've definitely kind of freaked me out a little bit. Um, so I've definitely had a lot of strange little things happen that have made me uneasy. And I've had um, multiple of my friends and family be like, you better be careful because if it is a serial killer, they're going to be coming for you. So, Well, I, I think actually serial killers like the notoriety. So you might be the last person a serial killer would kill. Yeah, you're like the, uh, you're like the Clary Starling to the Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> what's, one of the, what's one of the creepy messages that you got? It was like something out of a Reddit thread or something. Um, this person uh, sent me a link to a website they had made, which then had, had another link on it, which had a message, which was in Morse code. And it was just, it was bananas. This is despite every effort in my being, every like fiber I have to say, to come up with something logical. This is the single mind-boggling thing i've ever read about and looked into that that's so local and and right around the corner tim and i talk about how during 2003 and four and five and six i mean we we were down there we were that age down there by the td garden uh in faneuil hall at hennessy's or the purple shamrock or the black rose on the weekends, leaving after a couple of drinks, stumbling to the train, however you get home, right? And and uh, it's it it gives you a bit of pause to think that you could have walked by somebody, you know, I could have walked by Hurley right before something happened. There's no reason to think that that couldn't have happened. It's such a small world. Between those two cases right there, you see it's such a small world. And a small town, too. And I, I think a lot of people listening really don't understand that. You touched on it earlier, Elise. It's uh, the the proximity in, in Faneuil Hall to TD Garden. A lot of these areas in Boston, very, very really close. Boston is, is really a walking city. You can cover it all in a few hours. Yep. Uh, walking so in in my series of walking around i i was walking around that kind of the bell and hand tavern sort of locale and it was just crazy to me because you, you know you walk past the bell and hand and then you you know go down the other street there and then oh there's the marriott that's where uh you know eugene Lossick was and then you take another right and you go a little bit more down the street and then oh there's the black rose that's where <laughs> dustin willis was and it's just everything is so shockingly close together that it's incredible really one thing that it uh i really liked on your blog was when you walked down uh where uh, zachary marr was found or what his path would have been there was a a poem written on the on the on the orange or the yellow uh barriers the barrier markers they're like they're like permanent cones in the in the concrete what was the poem the poem is empty-handed i entered the world barefoot i leave it my coming my going two simple happenings that got entangled and yeah when i saw that i was i i think i saw the um phrase the, the phrase barefoot i leave it um first and then i had to like stop and walk back around and read it cone by cone again and i was just like amazed i was like was this already here did somebody do this because of the thing i don't even i have no idea was he barefoot was he found barefoot that i'm not positive about that's one of the many things that i would love to get uh freedom freedom of information acts about was uh what clothing articles they were all found with because that was actually another huge thing in David Politis's book is a lot of times um, the people who go missing in his books are found um, just missing either a single shoe or both of their shoes and nothing else, which is just a weird, another weird coincidence.